Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We'll be dancing with the cells tonight and sharing lots of science and new discoveries about those amazing little pieces of spaghetti known as RNA. Messenger, micro, small interfering, or transfer, RNA is truly the biologic new frontier. Get the latest on this edition of Ask Dr. Don, but first, a few brief stories about COVID. One, reassuring. One, promising. And one so useless, you have to wonder how they actually got the funding to do it. But uh, there's been a little bit of that going around. I guess it goes around with every global pandemic. Honestly, this is my first. Okay. In the early days of COVID, fast, you know, put, put the reverse on about two years, people like myself, those with a history of allergic asthma, ranked ourselves as high risk. It made us nervous. Most of people, most people who have had asthma have had the experience of having a cold that just lingered, flared their symptoms, and lasted for months. Very unpleasant. Well, the vast majority of people infected with the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV have a mild cold-like symptom or moderate flu-like symptoms or maybe even no symptoms, but the virus is very transmissible. As you know, it spread deep into lung tissue and it can cause severe disease and did in thousands of people in the United States this year. Researchers at the University of California, excuse me, of North Carolina at Chapel Hill revealed biological reasons for how diverse progression happens and why a certain unexpected population of asthma patients are less susceptible to severe COVID-19. This research was published just recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's very, very peer-reviewed. It illustrates the importance of a well-known cytokine called interleukin-13 in protecting cells against SARS-CoV-2, and it helps explains the mystery uh, of a fact that emerged over the last two years, which is people with allergic asthma actually do better than the general population, despite having a chronic lung condition. And this is not from the asthma drugs that they're using. It's, well, turns out to be something else. People with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, they're at very high risk for severe disease. So what is it that differentiates the asthmatics who suffer from something we also consider to be a form of COPD? Well, it turns out it's IL-13. Cytokines are a chemical signal, and this chemical signal Many chemical signals help fight diseases, but they're also pro-inflammatory. So we really need to understand the natural pathways, and that's where studying these asthma patients come in. These are people who have disease caused by allergens, mold, pollen, dander, and they looked at human airway epithelial cell cultures initially to try to understand the mechanism. So first, they took human air, uh, living human airway cell cultures. This would be the lining of the lungs with the cell, the cilia and every every the mucus uh, the mucus glands and everything that's supposed to be there. And they looked at the expression of the human protein ACE two, which is of course the docking site for COVID, and they looked at the amount of virus and viral load. So once they did that. They took these cells in various stages of being infected, and they looked at them under an electron microscope, and they found that the cells that move mucus along the airway surface, the ciliated cells, would get infected with large numbers of virus. And then when they, once they were infected, they would they wouldn't rupture, they would actually peel off the their lining, the uh, the rest of the lining, the next cells below them, and join the mucus layer. And this it was made it like a just a seed 
packet of COVID because these cells contained a ton of COVID inside them. And because they were heavy, they tended to retreat deeper into the lung tissue. So it's the fact that these ciliated cells exfoliate, if you will, which is not something we see in other forms of pneumonia that explains one of the special properties. And further experiments looking at these cells showed that it that a major protein that was supposed to be there, something called MUC5AC, was not where it should be. And these are proteins that are secreted to help trap virus, just like the mucus in your nose, right? But the cells had produced so much mucus that they basically became overwhelmed. This is where studying the asthmatic comes in. The researchers already knew that cytokine IL-13 increased uh, mucus secretion. So there was more muc 5 in the lungs of asthma patients when they were confronted with an allergen. So this was a natural part of the asthma reaction. So they tried treating these human airway cells with IL-13, and they measured all sorts of things, viral titers, the mRNA, how fast the cells shed, the overall number of infected cells, and all sing- every single one of the parameters was decreased. And even when they took the mucus out of the equation, they found that the presence of IL-13 still did all of these things. So then, of course, they did bulk RNA sequencing analysis and found that IL-13 upregulated genes that control glycoprotein synthesis, ion transport, and a number of antiviral processes. And furthermore, IL-13 actually reduces the expression of the surface receptor, the ACE2 protein on the surface of the cell, which is the thing that the virus has to grab onto. So fewer docking posts, if you will, fewer viruses can get into the cell. And once they're in there, the IL-13 keeps them from replicating rapidly. So we can't use IL-13 as a treatment because, as I said at the top of the story, it's inflammatory. But I'll tell you, when I read this, I, as a asthmatic, well, heaved a little sigh of relief and said, okay, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm somewhat protected versus uniquely uh, vulnerable. And of course, there we have many tools now to help people who feel themselves to be increasingly vulnerable. Just as a side note, and I'm ad-libbing from my normal plan here, the the second booster was approved, and that is available. And I think it's a smart thing to do if you are immunosuppressed or at very, very high risk. I also think that the that it is that we are at a point of diminishing returns with respect to the ability of boosters to uh, continue to protect us, and that's why they're working on new vaccines and the very plug-and-play nature of RNA, which we'll be coming to in just a few moments, is one of the things that makes me optimistic that that will occur fairly pronto because you really don't have to prove the safety of this vehicle. All you have to do is show its effectiveness, and that eliminates a major hurdle in terms of rapidly retooling these vaccines. Meanwhile, at um, the University of British Columbia, researchers have been working on a nasal spray that they've found is highly uh, protective for treating COVID-19 and also Omicron, although that Omicron data is unpublished. This specially designed uh, compound is called N0385, and it blocks the the, uh, enzyme in the nasal mucosa that activates the virus. So the, the virus actually, the COVID virus, doesn't actually have the ability to attach to the ACE2 uh, receptor until it's been armed by a naturally occurring enzyme on the surface of the cell right next to the ACE2 receptor. This enzyme is called furan. It has other names as well, of course. Why not? Why stick with one? But it is an enzyme that essentially it's like cocking a gun um, or chambering around it's what enables the virus to fire itself, to attach and fire. So why not not load the gun? Sounds like a good move. And so they found that this molecule blocked that enzyme, and they turned it into 
a topical agent, and it's because it acts on the surface of the mucosa, it blocks entry at the cell surface, doesn't let the virus get in. So it's uh, going to be a nasal spray, and they are currently working on developing it. It will come eventually. I think it may very well be one of the first anti-respiratory infection. You know, a lot of the common colds are caused by variants of the coronavirus, all of which attach to the ACE receptor, all of which require this enzyme for activation. So one of the COVID bonuses that we are maybe going to get out of this is something resembling uh, a preventative for one of uh, several of the more common forms of common cold. And so, like I said, that one's a bit promising. Now we get to one where you scratch your head. How fingers could point to a link between low testosterone and COVID uh, hospitalizations. This comes out of Swansea uh, University, which is, I believe, in, believe it's in Eastern Europe somewhere. I'm not certain where it is. Uh, I'll just read it to you. It's widely recognized that a longer ring finger is a marker of higher levels of testosterone prenatally whereas a longer index finger is a marker of higher levels of prenatal estrogen. Generally, men have longer ring fingers, women have longer index fingers, and that's thought to be related to sex le- levels of sex hormones in the womb. There's a lot of controversy about that. I wouldn't say that it's widely recognized, but let's continue. Uh, people who are older and people who are male do have a tendency to get worse symptoms, and so these researchers, let's see, uh, University of Lodz in Poland and Sweden's Karolinska University looked at digit ratios as predictors of severe COVID symptoms. And basically what they found was if you have a short sm- little finger relative to your other digits, uh, you're more likely to have severe covid 19s leading to hospitalization. And what they found was actually a stronger uh, correlation and then we'll talk about correlation in a minute because this is an example of correlation crazy. Uh, if you have a larger right hand, you have elevated probabilities of uh, hospitalization. They go on to attempt to justify this as saying that maybe this would help uh, us target who should have priority for vaccinations. Yeah, I think we can do that without uh, figuring out how to measure hands. I really thought I would just give you an example of, like I said, how did this get funded? Here's yet another signaling pathway that we knew nothing about. Turns out it might be extraordinarily useful as a way of sending that uh, RNA where it needs to go. Let's start out with talking about worms. Curiouser and curiouser, said Alice as she vanished down the rabbit hole. Scientists have long puzzled about a critical way that cells can communicate with one another. Uh, It's not clear. There are these things that are tiny bubbles that float around outside of your bloodstream in the intracellular, uh, sorry, extracellular space. There's a lot of fluid in that extracellular space. That's where the chi channels are in acupuncture. It is a, a space that is able to conduct electricity, and it also conducts tiny little bubbles that are secreted or excreted by the cells called extracellular vesicles. And when they were first discovered, they were thought to be garbage, extracellular cellular debris, just basically the, the equivalent of poop. Uh, but these extracellular vesicles, or EVs, carry beneficial or toxic cargo, And uh, in the human brain, for example, we know that EVs carry disease-causing proteins that influence the progression of Alzheimer's disease. And things like proteins from the herpes virus, uh, for example, have been found in these EVs, and they tend to cluster in uh, the areas of the amyloid plaques. So EVs are of profound medical significance, but we don't understand how they form, how the cargo is packaged. Uh, when when different types come from different cells, how are they different? When they come, when different types come from the same cells, how does that work? And what do they do when they reach their destination? 
EVs can be found in human fluids like urine and blood, and they are currently being studied for use in liquid biopsies as biomarkers for disease because healthy and sick cells package different EVs and excrete them out into the urine. So uh, you start thinking about not having to do a cancer biopsy, but being able to do biopsies of, well, the urine and grab these EVs and maybe find out something about whether your chemotherapy is being uh, successful or whether you need to go hunting for a tumor because the person is showing signs of having one. So, of course, they used C. elegans, a simple little worm, round worm, very, very popular in scientific circles. And they did this massive identification of EV cargos. And they thought they'd focus on EVs produced in the nervous system. And they focused on the EV cargo produced by nerve cells. And that's when they found the RNA. EVs carry both RNA binding proteins as well as RNA. And of course, we know about the COVID RNA vaccine. We make our own little vesicles, if you will, micro vesicles, and they are carrying RNA itself as well. The Neuraj also package the RNA binding proteins uh, to drive communication between cells and between different tissues. The nice thing about this is you go around the synapses and you affect a broad uh, area without affecting synaptic function. And that could be very useful if you wanted to broadly spread an alarm signal. And it's probably how inflammation influences brain function. It's pro- This is probably one of the main ways is by the packaging and dispersion of inflammatory molecules. So they actually developed a method to track and profile the EVs. They have genetically encoded fluorescent tagged cargo, and they've discovered a lot so far just about this worm. It'll be very interesting to follow the story and see where it goes and whether or not it provides a useful vehicle for vectoring the RNA that we might want to create, because now we're going to talk about what we might do with it. This next story describes some of the things we might do with RNA. Um, Until now, proteins have been the target for most medications uh, for prevention of human disease. And uh, drug developers have perceived RNA to be too unstable. It's basically a bit of floating spaghetti. RNA could also be a viable target, however, according to recent work that came out of Massachusetts General Hospital and was published just recently in Nature Journal. Uh, there's a lot of drugs out there, hundreds of thousands. They target one of approximately 700 disease-related proteins. There are maybe 20,000 potential human proteins identified by the Human Genome Projects. But, you know, we've we've run out of ways to invent drugs that will go after the proteins that are any better than the ones we've already got. So they're looking for other druggable targets, and RNA is a prime candidate. Now, a segment of DNA, as you know, is copied or transcribed into coding RNA. That's the messenger RNA, which then goes outside of the nucleus and clicks into a ribosome, a sort of clam-shaped protein, which which reads the sequence of the codons from the DNA and translates that into a sequence of amino acids. Those amino acids fold upon themselves as they are extruded from one side of the ribosome. The RNA goes out the ceiling to be captured by another uh, another ribosome or broken down in the cell. 90, that's 2% of the RNA in the human genome. 98% of it is nod coding. We used to call that junk DNA and therefore junk RNA. Turns out these play a very important role. And mutations in this non-coding space can lead to disease, maybe many diseases, and certainly there are far more of these RNA genes, so far more potentials for drug developments. So proteins are, have a stable shape, and that makes them an arg, uh, easy target. You bind your drug to the protein like a key in a lock, but because RNA is flexible and floppy and twists around like a single strand of spaghetti in a pot of boiling water, how are you going to grab it? Right? I've had that problem, even, and I had a fork. If a lock is consistently changing shape, says the, uh, one of the main researchers here, your key is not going to work. But by studying RNA, 
carefully, researchers at the molecular lab at Massachusetts General have discovered that there are parts of RNA that are actually stable. Now, Lee's lab is looking at something called X-chromosome inactivation, which is just fascinating. What on earth is that? Well, all females are born with two copies of the X chromosome, and one of them has to be deactivated for normal development. So let's go calico cat, right? The only calico cats are female. They turn off as a, when they're at the ball of cell stage, they turn off one or the other of their X chromosomes. And when that segment grows out into the mature cat, the skin that came from the cell that had the particular switch on their uh, X chromosome flipped turns out to be black or white or yellow, depending upon how the deactivation went. So we've all seen this deactivation. And in fact, using this fact that female cells have one of their X chromosomes turned off, that that particular turning off creates a structure called a bar body. And so you can look in the skin of uh, the inside of a cheek of someone with a microscope and look at the chromosomes and actually see the bar bodies and know that, oh, that comes from a female mouth or that comes from a male mouth. So studying how this deactivation of the X chromosome happens has implications for certain diseases. Fragile X syndrome, a a type of mental retardation, Rett syndrome, another disease which, because it's caused by mutations in the X chromosome, is much more serious in males. The females, a certain, well, half of their cells, statistically, are going to have the good gene and half are going to have the bad. They went looking for this stable area of uh, RNA. It turns out it's uh, it's a non-coding RNA called Exist, which silences the genes on the X chromosome. This was already known. So they wanted to see how did that work. And they found several areas that bind to a region on the uh, Exist. They found drugs that would block it, in other words, and keep it from binding to the X chromosome. This is a proof of concept, but it's also interesting. No matter what they what they did, the the structural change prevented the REPA from being able to bind to its target sites. So now we have a proof of concept that we can start affecting the way that the control RNA works. Here's another example. Uh, researchers have discovered that a protein critical in the embryologic stages of life is reactivated in certain, often many cases, of mesothelioma. It's a protein called HAND2, and it's turned on. Now, HAND2 is only seen in embryology. Mesothelioma, you probably know. If you watch TV, you see the ads by the lawyers. It's an aggressive cancer. It occurs in a thin layer of tissue called the mesothelium, which covers most internal organs, but specifically uh, the lungs are usually the first place that's affected. The HAND2 protein is important in the formation of the mesothelium. It's so way, way back when you're just a little ball of cells and the organs begin to form, it is there to create a kind of plastic wrap of protection around all of the endothelium, excuse me, around all of the organs that form and the mesenchyme or the mesothelial layer, which turns into most of your solid organs, those organs as they form get covered with this membrane called mesothelium. So they've been observing the development in zebrafish and looking at how this works and then trying to understand what happens in mesothelioma. And so this this particular cancer occurs long decades after asbestos exposure, and we don't know exactly how come asbestos turns back on this HAND2 protein. But what these researchers have been able to do is show that they can deactivate the HAND2 protein. So the question is, can we create a interfering RNA that we can send into the cancer, maybe through extracellular vesicle or some other medium, 
that will bind with and deactivate the messenger RNA that's being inappropriately transcribed by the cancer cell and prevent the formation of this protein, which facilitates some of the functions of a cancer that we really don't want in an adult tissue cell, such as the ability to migrate, the ability to detach from other cells, and the ability to grow uncontrollably. So now we're going to uh, flip to an email. This from an anonymous emailer. I think he wants to be anonymous. For a diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, for which I have no symptoms, I am to take omeprazole on a regular basis because of the rare chance of esophageal cancer. The medication comes with warnings that it should be taken for a short amount of time as possible. My doctor assures me that regular testing for negative side effects, which his patients have never experienced, are a sufficient safeguard. The option of taking omeprazole every other day rather than daily has been offered. What are your thoughts? Well, it's a difficult one because it depends upon your perspective. And I, of course, am reading this. It's a cold reading, so I don't have chances of uh, looking up the risk ratio if you have had Barrett's esophagus and you fix it uh, and have no further evidence on repeat endoscopy of Barrett's whether or not you need to continue to take the omeprazole because no one's ever done that study. What we do know is, well, let's first of all describe Barrett's esophagus because it's kind of a callus on the esophagus, sort of an interesting thing. Mucosal cells are, are thin. They're not layered like your skin of your hands, which have multiple, multiple layers, and you can peel off. You can get some glue on your hands and just sand the tip of your finger and pull off layers and layers of skin, you'll never know the difference because this, the skin is these flat paving stones and it's very, very thick and layered. On the other hand, mucosal tissue, while it heals very rapidly, is much thinner and really much more biologically active at its surface. It has to be. So it's vulnerable. And in a situation where you have chronic inflammation, you get oxidative stress, and you get the formation of free radicals, which are like sparks in the blacksmith shop. You don't want them landing on, uh, well, you don't want them landing on a pile of sawdust, do you? And so every time a spark lands, it potentially can damage DNA. So the more sparks, the more lottery tickets in the esophageal cancer lottery. And this is a nasty cancer. Symptoms have absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, there's a slight bias towards getting cancer when you have uh, Barrett's and you don't have symptoms because if you stop and think about it, maybe you don't have symptoms because the nerves are so damaged that they don't function anymore. So that may not, it may mean that the alarm is broken, not that there is no fire. In the case of the downsides of using uh, these Some of these can be overcome with some strategic strategies. I'll give you some strategies in just a moment. Overall, because I can't tell you how to keep yourself safe, I'm going to encourage you to actually follow the party line on this, which means, yes, take the omeprazole. Yes, get yourself an annual endoscopy and have them take a look-see and make sure they biopsy right at the junction the gastroesophageal junction. Because what you see in Barrett's is you see little islands of hyperplastic tissue, which are basically squamous epithelium, which is fine in the stomach, but not fine in the esophagus. And you see little bits of it growing up, little islands of it. And it's it's the equivalent of a callus. It's It's a scab. It's the body saying, okay, this area is getting so inflamed, I need to protect it. But in process of making a really substantial epigenetic transition from being an, a, a stem cell that's producing a, a mucus cell uh, and a, a mucosa surface cell, I should say, and being a, a genetic production of squamous cells, you've flipped a lot of switches and you've told it to grow fast. And so that's risky when you might have DNA damage and some of those 
hand two like proteins being produced in your cells because the embryological genes that were supposed to be silenced lost their silencing because the methyl group or, for that matter, the silencing microRNA, because we really don't know for sure what's going on with gene silencing. But those things got woken up again. And maybe you continue to be at risk without symptoms. And it's, you know, the biopsies at the junction every time. If they remain quiet and you feel like experimenting, remember, this is not advice. This is like, okay, you really don't want to take this. I think you should. But if you really don't, you need to get biopsied at that junction every single time they're down there, even if it looks fine, to look for dysplasia. Now, I wouldn't do that. But you could. Let's go to the omeprazole. You're trying to reduce stomach acid going back up into the esophagus. There's a surgical procedure for that called a fundoplication. That might be something to think about. There's also an implant. It's it's basically a uh, muscle stimulator that goes into the lower esophageal sphincter and does the same thing. You might want to think about that. But if you decide to take my advice and continue on a proton pump inhibitor, here's some ways to get around the problems. One of them is to take your B12 by injection, learn to give yourself B12 injections, then you don't have to worry about not absorbing your B12. And that's an important long-term risk factor for neuropathy and, and dementia. And if you have other genes that are pushing you in that direction, this is not a great idea. You need that B12, but you could get it without going through your digestive tract. So that's one thing. The second thing is calcium. And the calcium problem is calcium doesn't absorb well unless there's acid in your stomach. Well, put some acid in your stomach when you take your calcium. How how could you do that? Well, among other things, you could drink some orange juice with your calcium tablets. Put some acid in there, apple cider vinegar, with your meals. That's going to help with your nutrient absorption. And it's not going to interfere or hurt your Barrett's. So there may be a way to thread the line, get the benefit of the protection, and avoid the consequences, most of the consequences in any way, of long-term use of these agents. So there you have it, some advice. We've been talking about messenger RNA or microRNA, and uh, we really haven't gotten into small interfering RNA just yet. So it's an RNA fest this evening, We've talked about fighting cancer. What about fighting diabetes and insulin resistance, or at least some types of it? In type 2 diabetes, the ability of the pancreas to produce and release insulin is often impaired. Previous studies have demonstrated that microRNAs are involved in this deterioration process. Micro-RNAs are non-coding RNAs that regulate the number of genes and proteins in a cell. Reducing the amount of microRNA could be a possible treatment for patients with type 2 diabetes. Research has also shown that a certain microRNA called MIR200C seems to affect the insulin secretion in diabetic mice. Until now, there hasn't been a lot of knowledge about the role of this in humans, but this study demonstrates that levels of micro uh, R200C differ between people with and without the disease, implicating it as well in human diabetes, not too surprising, as the distance between a mouse and a human is much less than the distance between either one and a spider. Their measurements of MIR200C in islets of Langerhans was from 34 deceased donors with and without type 2 diabetes, and they grew cell cultures from this structure in the pancreas and measured increased levels of micro-interfering R200C in people with the disease. So now it's a real question. Can we increase insulin secretion by reducing the levels of this? And they tried it in cell culture, and indeed they got, by reducing the levels of uh, micro-interfering R200C, they got increased insulin in three different donors. That's about a 300% increase in all of the donors. That's really substantial. So now they're going to try using it in 
diabetic rats to further understand it. This isn't going to help everybody, but there are many groups of people, often referred to as diabetes type 1.5, who require insulin early because they're Uh, even though they're a type 2 and they make some insulin, they don't make enough to respond to a glucose load. So we need more individualized treatments. There's basically probably at least three, if not more, different subtypes of uh, type 2 diabetes. And so the idea here is that this is a good target for maybe a drug that binds it, or uh, maybe a maybe we could direct that uh, a different RNA, so a, essentially a RNA that was the exact negative of this interfering RNA, so that you defanged it, basically created something that could not do whatever it is doing to the nucleus and the DNA production for insulin uh, messenger RNA that uh, is leading to this downregulation. We're starting to get to the point where we can do some nuts and bolts manipulating. Well, what about cancer? Well, researchers have found that another micro-interfering RNA um, called R634 reduces the resistance of oral squamous carcinoma cells to cisplatin. And they actually used an ointment on mice that had been injected with a squamous cell carcinoma This is going to be very helpful for people with advanced oral cancer. So let me talk for a moment about oral squamous cell carcinoma because the the cervix is where we see cervical cancer. This is a squamous cell carcinoma of the cervix. It is known to be triggered and associated with the human papillomavirus, which we now have a vaccine for that has drastically reduced the rates of cervical cancer in people who are vaccinated before they become sexually active. And I am going to stand up here in my soapbox and recommend that boys and girls both be vaccinated because this is a sexually transmitted disease. And we have seen since sexual practices shifted about 50 years ago, a huge increase in oral squamous cell carcinoma in both, well, heterosexual and homosexual males, but just lots and lots of boys are getting cancer in their mouth. Use of any kind of uh, tobacco, especially chewing tobacco, also increases the chance that this will happen. But this is a cancer that strikes young people, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds, just like cervical cancer strikes young people. It is a cancer caused by a virus that we have a vaccine for. Researchers found a microRNA that basically goes into the nucleus of the cells that are cancerous and turns off the cell protective processes, the signaling that turns off the ability of the cell to to stop growing. In other words, the self-destruct signal is disabled. The antioxidant scavenging that allows cells to, uh, cancer cells in particular, protect themselves against our chemotherapy drugs, which primarily kill by releasing all those free oxygen radicals I talked about earlier in the, esoph- in the esophagus. So just a small amount of this molecule in cells increases the sensitivity of the squamous cells to our major chemo drug. And chemo resistance is something that happens over time. You get increased killing and presumably increased cure. So as a proof of concept, let's talk about taking this now, this micro R634, and injecting it into actual tumors and seeing if that has an effect on tumor growth. Let's start seeing what the safe dose is. Maybe we could inject it. Maybe we could put it in a intravenous form of some kind and get it into the deep parts of the cancer through the blood supply. Delivery is always the problem. Maybe even those extracellular vesicles could be used if we can figure out how to uh, weaponize the lymphatic system to carry them. It could drop them in the extracellular fluid, and that would certainly be a novel delivery method. So I'm going to do a long reach here and 
give you one more RNA uh, because it's just all over the place. When I was doing my prep for the show, I had all of these RNA stories and I think we're putting them together into a very brave new world sort of positive picture. Well, a major advance in studying fetal development using RNA RNA sequencing, uh, the transcriptome, it's called, the circulating messenger RNA molecules. These are produced by activated genes, and they looked in uh, more than 1,800 pregnant women of diverse uh, ages, races, ethnicities, body mass index, you name it, all the human variation. They extracted and identified cell-free RNA from the mother's bloodstream, um, the placenta, and also from the fetus, which they could identify, especially in the males, that pesky little Y chromosome. And they identified combinations of cell-free RNA that were able to predict gestational age. Remember that little ball of cells? Well, it grows organs, and then those organs excrete compounds in their their extracellular vesicles. We've learned about that this program, and those can be picked up by a blood test, isolated and read to tell us or check on the gestational age. And they were able to demonstrate the accuracy of this by comparing it with ultrasound, and it's really quite good. They also were able to measure the activation of fetal genes that are known to be important in the development of specific organs. Think about how this might allow us to identify cardiac defects in utero, uh, problems with agenesis of a kidney. They even, and this is huge, identified a transcriptome, in other words, you know, a pattern of cell-free RNA that predicted eclampsia, preeclampsia and eclampsia, which is still a lethal potentially disease that causes uh, early terminations of pregnancies, fetal loss, maternal loss, stroke in the mother. I mean, this is a terrible disease. So when they looked at samples at 14 weeks, it predicted the development of preeclampsia months later. So this would be such a a good idea because we would be able to to look at candidates and say, okay, you're going on aspirin to prevent preeclampsia. By the way, we don't know why that works, but it does. Stay tuned and maybe someday I'll tell you about that as well. But right now, what I want to tell you is It's the renaissance of uh, RNA. This is the the new frontier for biology, and I'm extremely excited to see what biology does with this and also with some extremely innovative things that are coming down the pike as well. Let's, Let's change topics, and let's imagine cells dancing, because that's actually what these researchers are managing to do. And by making the cells dance in solution, they're learning all sorts of interesting things that they couldn't otherwise test. Now, many years ago, I was at a sound and healing conference at Santa Fe. And one of the things that uh, really fascinated me was an exhibit in the exhibit hall where they were playing different sounds and they had these sort of flat membranes, big ones, maybe 14, 16 inches across, and they had colored sand on them. And as the music played, the sand danced, and it and it would aggregate into mandala-like patterns based on what was playing. And you could look at the patterns, listen to the music, and see that it was very recognizable, the pattern uh, of, let's say, mm, Baroque uh, harpsichord music was... It created a very distinct pattern. The if you got into rock and roll, that was different. If you got into some something more rhythmic, that was different. And these these patterns were both unique to the music, but also kind of reproducible in form by the type of music. And I, I was seeing the music; it was really cool. Well, mechanical engineers at Duke University are doing that but they're doing it with suspended particles in gel, so cells and particles. And they use two different electronic voices. They have a prototype device a device that can actually form and rotate and create, basically form a single-layer crystal from a group of particles. They can create arbitrary shapes with a given number of particles, and they can move biological cells together 
cause them to bind, and then cause them to separate. And by doing that, they can test the strength of the binding, something that's hitherto been impossible to do. So they can measure these adhesion forces between two cells. This could be really, really useful for determining what's the best treatment for individual cancer treatments. And this is a very, very gentle device. They've called it the uh, HANDS platform for Harmonic Acoustics for Non-Contact Dynamic. So I guess that's another subtext for the program, three stories that use the word HANDS in a single show. Anyway, our HANDS platform is the first method of separating paired objects, which provides a way into cell-to-cell interaction studies needed for drug discovery. I'm going to jump from drug discovery for a moment and just talk about T-cell interactions. One of the most promising cancer therapies we currently have is immunotherapy, where your own T-cells are basically taken out of your body and taught to recognize your cancer and then put back into your body. So this is going to make that much faster because by using acoustics, you'll be able to figure out what which T-cells are the most effective binders, and then amplify that clone of T-cells for reinjection into the patient and do it much more rapidly. And of course, when you're talking about cancer treatment, time is of the essence. So more about these piezoelectric, uh, these acoustic tweezers, uh, they, they, this one is like the 3.0 version of this, and they introduced uh, piezoelectric melodies and harmonies. Previous to this, it's been like a single pitch. Think of um, just a mach- the machines just singing a single note, and that single note does something to the cells. But now it's dynamic. They're hitting rapid highs, rapid lows. Think about, oh my goodness, the Queen of the Night's opera in uh, Mozart's The Magic Flute, if you want to think about rapid highs and rapid lows. And now think about two two people singing that uh, in contrapunto, and you start to get the idea of how complex a manipulation device this can be. They set it up with four transducers, two across from each other, and two so they could get horizontal patterns and vertical patterns, and then they could change the sound wave patterns and create amazing dynamics. I have to go see if they've got some uh, some stuff on the internet showing their um, showing these images. It sounds like it's just going to be wild, but they took uh, thirty four sorry, 24 particles, and they built a 3D crystal. Uh, They spun it uh, like a plate on the fingertip, and they're doing this all with real cells, real particles in a gel uh, or a viscous fluid, probably more accurately. They can also spell letters, but that sounds like something you might do just to impress people at the science fair. Uh, but they can push those cells together and pull them apart, and that's where measuring the adhesion forces, finding the T cells that stick the best to the cancer cells, that is a truly practical application of something that sounds like really impractical science. So pretty cool stuff there. And seeing no further emails, I shall launch into my next story. And it's a topic change, so let me take a breath and say that over the course of my work as an acupuncturist and a clinician as well, but when in acupuncture you have more time with the patient to learn about all of the drivers and more of their history. And as I've done that, in parallel, more and more work has come out about the effects of adverse childhood experiences and how this has statistically major probabilistic uh, implications for how likely you are to commit suicide, how likely you are to get diabetes or hypertension, how likely you are to have drug abuse. And it transcends genetics, although genetics certainly can amplify the vulnerability. But the bottom line is that in early in life, evolution wants us to adapt to whatever is going to be thrown at us. And that adaptation is variable, but we haven't understood how it works in the brain. This is really fascinating to me. The microglia, which are the brain's immune cells, turn out to function poorly, and one of their key functions 
in the brains of individuals exposed to early life adversity. This leads to aberrant responses to stress in adulthood that can be linked to things like depression and anxiety. Turns out the glial cells, these immune cells, one of their main jobs in early brain development is to prune the synapses. We're born, all of us, including mice, uh, with more synapses than we need. And the synapses are pruned by the glial cells in response to the environmental signals that are received as an adaptive strategy. So we focus on the neurons, but this shows that the the immune cells play a critical role in neural wiring and neuroimmune uh, interactions is something we haven't really understood or thought about, but it's probably going to be huge. What they did was they took transgenic mice and they housed them in a nice temperature-controlled, quiet, uncrowded conditions, 12 hours light, 12 hours dark, free access to food and water, and then... They decided to, so then when the mice got pregnant, they took the pregnant moms and they, that's where the randomization, half of them went into a cage with standard amounts of bedding and nesting material. Half of them went into cages with not enough bedding materials. So literally the little baby mice were going to be cold, stressed, and they weren't going to have a nice soft nest to be born into. And then they found that the, this adverse life experience increased prevented the down-regulation or pruning of excitatory synapses. So this was especially in the stress-sensitive hypothalamus. So this, the hypothalamus was programmed to basically be more responsive to stress, to release more uh, corticotropin-releasing hormone. That's the hormone that leads to the release of ACTH in the pituitary and stimulates the adrenal glands to release stress hormones, both acute stress hormones, epinephrine, and chronic stress hormones, cortisol. This basically happened so and left these pups on a hair trigger to overproduce adrenaline and to respond and to be more vulnerable to stress and not be as readily able to calm themselves down. Absolutely crazy. And it happens in humans. And the implications of that are pretty profound. I'm going to leave you to think about them. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.